is Lauren Fiorelli, and I'm here at the Macon branch of the Brooklyn Public Library with uh, Aida Mohammed. We're at, um, today is March 23rd, 2016, and it's for Our Streets, Our Stories, Our History Project. And so, Aida, yeah. um, tell me what, you were born in Brooklyn, right? Born and raised. I always say when I have a bio that I have to submit, I always say I'm a proud Brooklynite third generation. Um, so that just kind of like puts the disclaimer out there. I love transients, but I'm not one of them. Um, so yes, I've been born and raised in Brooklyn and um, particularly Bedford-Stuyvesant. That's like what I call home. So yeah, that's my community. Nice. Mm -hmm. You put down epicenter as one of the words you want to describe the community as. Yeah. So tell me why you chose that word. I feel like culturally, Bed-Stuy in particular has been the epicenter. So many um, influential historians historical figures, icons have come from this community. I mean, we're two blocks away from where uh, Lena Horne grew up. Uh, Shirley Chisholm was a Bed-Stuy Brooklynite. She went to actually my alma mater, Boys and Girls High School, which was at the time Girls High. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton is from Brooklyn. I mean, there's so many people that in this, you know, 10 to 15 block radius that we're kind of surrounded by right now have come through here. So I think it was the epicenter of culture even in my era of the 90s and the, the late 80s, Bed-Stuy was like the spot you went for the best house parties or it was the place you went to see the best underground artists. Um, many of them just came up through here. So I feel like culturally it has been the epicenter for so long and I hope that we keep that, you know, that we hold on to, the, to that history and kind of continue that legacy of, of not losing the culture as it starts to disseminate to other parts of Brooklyn. So yeah, it is. You said third generation Brooklynite, so has was your family also from Bedside? Did they move throughout the borough or You know, that's a good question. So my grandmother, my mother's mom, um, she's the what we consider first Brooklynite. She was adopted and she knows nothing else except for Brooklyn. So um, I think she was born somewhere else, but she started living here when she was an infant. So we call her like an original Brooklynite. Um, but my mom and dad were both born in the same hospital. They did not know each other. There's no incest in my family at all. But um, <laughs> but, but they were born at St. John's Hospital, and they both still live here in Bed-Stuy. Um, I've tried to coerce them to moving to other places, but they're like, nope, Brooklyn is home for us. We have property here. Our roots are here, and so they feel very comfortable now being in their mother, my mother's 70s and my dad's late 60s. So um, yeah, I think I think um, being a third generation Brooklynite gives me a good perspective as to what uh, since the, gosh, the early 20s, if not before, uh, Brooklyn was all about. And my family has um, over the years never ever claimed any other place as home. So yeah, makes me feel good. Nice. Can you tell me what it was like growing up here? Oh, growing up in Brooklyn. You know, well, I'm an 80s baby, early 80s baby. And um, growing up here was, you know, really, I guess it's like growing up anywhere. It's really what your parents expose you to. Um, it, it That really determined your experience. So granted, I grew up in Bedside where um, at the time, yes, there was crime and there was um, a, a, what you would consider a negative undertone to community. Um, 
But the thing that was at the surface most was family and um, loyalty and um, a sense of I, what I believe is the Brooklyn way, pride uh, and love in the community. So I grew up in a block, on a block called Hart Street. Well, I started a little bit further out in East New York, but that was like, I don't even remember that. Um, so I grew up on Hart Street between Nostrand and Marcy and uh, it's just a beautiful block of brownstones. Um, many were owned by the the residents that occupied the the homes, but for the most part, you know, it's just a family block. I rode outside with my friends on my bike. I had a pogo stick, and you know, that was like my thing. I think all my friends, none of them had one, but I did. Um, I was a very active child in the arts, so I performed as a child. I um, I danced for 13 years, and so that was like the first introduction to performing for me. So I got a chance to really explore what the community abroad looked like, not just Bed-Stuy, but in other parts of Brooklyn. I traveled to Fort Greene for dance class every day. Um, we performed in a number of the venues, uh, Paul Robeson Theater and Billie Holiday Theater, and you know we eventually moved on to performing at festivals and things like that. So. Um, my experience as a child growing up was very cultural. It was very immersed in the not only um, American culture of arts, but it was also um, very Afrocentric. I went to, um, up until junior high school, I went to private schools, but it wasn't because my mother didn't think public schools were great. She just wanted to um, determine, and I think in many ways dictate what my foundation was gonna be. So I went to uh, an Afrocentric school here in Brooklyn that was, um, I would say the third generation of the school itself um, was initially Weoshi Shule, um, and that was through the African Street Festival, which happens to be still going on. I think it is one of the longest running um, black events in not only New York City, but I think across the country. And it's in its almost 50th year. Um, so my school was a product of that. And um, I went to Johnson Preparatory School and we had a number of artists, MC Light came through there. There were a number of just like really amazing artists and cultural activists that came through that school. And so I was a part of that legacy. Um, I was not one of the last graduating classes, but I definitely was in the last era as the school started to um, phase out and it now no longer exists. Um, my parents decided, you know, for me that foundation was very important. And so I got an opportunity, unlike most of my peers in Bed-Stuy, to really understand not only my local culture, but my ethnicity and my heritage in many ways um, and how that stemmed from my ancestry. So yeah, my childhood was um, very rounded and I think it was also very rooted in um, who I was as a black girl um, in Brooklyn. Because Brooklyn, I mean, honestly, I don't know what they're talking about as diversity. Brooklyn's always been diverse. Um, my brother is black and Irish and his best friends are Italian and you know they hung out on the block with like Puerto Ricans and that's just what Brooklyn's always been for me. So. Um, growing up, I think it was really setting the stage for who I am now as an adult and um, preparing me for just 
the the level of diversity that our city has to offer and knowing that I didn't feel ostracized in any way when I stepped into the, the world outside of Brooklyn. Um, I knew how to um, interact with anyone and everyone and I felt very comfortable knowing that that was because of my foundation here. So I guess that's my portion of my childhood in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, so you feel like Brooklyn gave you sort of a good introduction to sort of how to interact in the world. Abs oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it did. And my parents, I mean, have a lot to do with that. My mother especially, um, because she was just determined. Like, Aida, though she showed all of these great gifts and talents, she really needs to know what life is like, you know, outside of just her community. And never feeling like once she um, was introduced to it, she would in some way have a culture shock. So, um, yeah, Brooklyn was able to offer that to me because I think of its diversity. I think if I lived, you know, in the Bronx or in Staten Island or in other parts of New York City, I may not have been able to appreciate it in the same way. Um, but there was something really special about the way Brooklyn was always diverse, even though my surrounding community was more than likely 80% black. And I would say, yeah, that other 20% was like, I just throw it out to other because most of them are black and brown people. Yeah. What sort of culture shock do you mean when you're saying that she was trying to sort of protect you from? You know, I look at some of my um, peers and I realized that they didn't get exposed to the, the ethnic or the cultural experience that I had as a, at a young age. So their first introduction to it was like maybe high school, more than likely college, and some of them not until they got into the work world. It was the choices that they made or their parents made for them that didn't allow them to see anything outside of Bed-Stuy or didn't allow them to experience things outside of the South that they took vacations to visit family during the summertime. Um, they and don't get me wrong, it's nothing wrong with staying, um, you know, within your community. Um, but you, you got to know that there's this world is so much more spacious than just your neighborhood. So uh, I feel like, yeah, my peers in comparison to their upbringing and the way they were exposed or not exposed to things, um, I really was privileged. I really was privileged. And not in the economic sense or the financial sense, but it was I was privileged because my mom... Um, and my father, but they, my mother was, she was in the community and very active in the community, um, but she was exposed to the world outside of our community. And yeah, some people, they never went to a Broadway show. I mean, my first Broadway show, I was probably, I don't even know why she took me at three, but I was like three, I went to see Cats. Um, and she took me to see Les Mis, and, which is now one of my favorites. She took me to see, yeah, she took me to see um, uh, so many. I mean, I, I went to see black performances that were off-Broadway. Mama, I want to sing, and um, A Streetcar Named Desire. I saw all of these things as a child, and so she was fostering a love for the arts, I think, because she realized that I was so connected to it and I, I had an interest in it. But for the most part, I think you know she wanted me to know that there was a world outside of my community. So whatever the circumstances were within Bedford-Stuyvesant at the time, you know the the 
graffiti was big, which I have a love for now, but back then it was really, much of it was defaming property. Um, it wasn't artistic in the way that we see it now. It was, some of it was just, you know, it was excessive. So people would like graffiti folks' cars, and it's like, that's, you don't do that, you know? Um, so she wanted me to just see that, yes, you can have an appreciation for this place that you come from, but there's so much more. Um, and, and here's what it looks like. And it didn't necessarily mean that it looked white or it looked Asian or it looked any race or, or ethnicity, but um, it just looked different from what you are accustomed to seeing. So, yeah. Do you feel like this sort of broader education you were getting from your mother and from the arts mm -hmm. um, set you apart from, from your peers that you're saying were a little more sheltered? or? Um. If it set me apart, I was still or at odds or yeah, no, I, I was still a child. I definitely, you know, had typical um, peer pressure, or um, I was teased and taunted about, you know, what I thought was cool. Um, I probably had a quirky side as a child, and it was just like, really, Aida? Like, nobody else does this. Um, for me, musicals were the best thing going. I would. My mother would use them as punishment for me. Like if I didn't do my homework on time or if I didn't get a good grade on a test, I couldn't watch Peter Pan or I couldn't watch The Wiz or like those were things that she realized I just had a love for. So um, my peers didn't think that was cool at all. Not when I was younger. Um, I think they were exposed to other things. Um, and I guess I'm only comparing it now because it's coming up for me, but I never once felt like I didn't fit in or um, I, I did feel like I was privileged. I did because I know I had friends who whose parents were never exposed to those things. And so they didn't even know that it existed until my mother said, oh, I'm taking the children out to a, you know, event and can so-and-so come along? And then they'd come along and they'd be in awe of what they were witnessing because they had never seen it before. Um, and I, I was not the only one. I did have friends in the community who were uh, very active outside of the community as well as within, and they were exposed to things. So um, I don't feel like I was an anomaly, but I definitely feel like the few of us that did get exposed to things like that, it was just rare. Um, very different from now. You know, my peers, we all come from Brooklyn, but we still, um, yeah, have gained something that we, um, I don't know, that we credit to our parents and to our community for giving us that thing, whatever it is, and it's allowed us to thrive in our adulthood. Um, so I think it all kind of traces back to um, our elders and our community that kind of nurtured that within us, whatever our experiences were. For you, do you have a word for what that thing is? Gosh. I don't know. It's just kind of magic. I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I think, I don't know what that thing is because it's it does look so different in each of us. Um, but if I had to think of um, peers, friends um, that I grew up with or that grew up in this community, There's some, there, I don't know, I would call it maybe a little tenacity, 
You know, we were we were amidst what many people would consider um, imbalance or um, just just not a, a nurturing environment, but we still were nurtured. We still um, were embraced by our elders. We were still embraced by our culture. We were still embraced by many things. Um, and we were able to take that that we got and go forth and be great kind of thing, you know? Like, we were still able to do that. And, yeah, there's a richness of, of, of history in this community that um, truly goes back many years before me. But I think in my generation, you know, the hip-hop generation, the art really sparked um, a great movement and it allowed us to see the possibility of like what we could give to the world. Um, so yeah, I think the art, if it was the common thread in this entire um, um, share, I would say that you know art was the thing that allowed us to see the possibility. And um, I think it's one of the things that most of our young people nowadays uh, don't get. Um, it's it's not standard in education anymore. It's um, defunded in many ways, and uh, young people don't get an opportunity to see themselves through art um, the same way we did. So, yeah, no matter what was happening in Bed Stuy, there was always something cool, and there was always something artistic that was. Um, replacing the not so positive images. And I think that's why many of us in, in my generation uh, were able to withstand all of the other stuff because we could find a way to express ourselves. And yeah, I, I totally credit that to um, what our elders preserved as community because we wouldn't be able to do that if it weren't for them, so yeah. Do you have um, any like specific memories of this all all that other stuff um, that you're that you're saying about Bed Stuy? The site that you're sort of fighting against a little bit. You know, I guess the memories they tie in, but there's nothing traumatic that I've ever experienced. Um, I remember I was 16 years old and I was working at the time for the Gap, and I happened to. This is so odd that I'm telling this story because I haven't told it in a long time. Um, I was working for The Gap, and my mom had to sign off that I could do overnight. So seemingly my manager at the store that does not physically exist anymore in the lower uh, lower Manhattan, kind of on the east side. Um, so it wasn't LES. It was like the village, the east village. Um, my manager was like, Aida's doing some really great work here. And I became a denim specialist, which basically meant that I would refold <laughs> the denim wall in the store. And I got so good at it one day, this is all gonna tie into your question. One day, um, a regional manager came in and they said, who did this? And so my store manager said, oh, it's Aida. She's like a young girl, this is her first job. It was really like my first paid gig. And so my mom had to sign off on me doing overnights. It wasn't at the time for a 16-year-old, and probably still isn't legal for them to work after a certain hour. So she gave them permission. It was the summertime. I wasn't, you know, jeopardizing my schoolwork. And um, I became a denim specialist in my area. So like maybe four stores. 
And I would do these overnights. And I never forget, she said to me, she said, Aida, I signed off on this for you because I wanted you to feel like you were being rewarded for your great work. I didn't want you to feel like because you um, were acknowledged by your employer, you couldn't progress because that may send the wrong message. So she said, I signed off on this for you that, this for you for that reason. Um, but I don't feel comfortable with you walking the streets at 4 a.m. Because I typically work from like four to five or four, I mean 12, 11 to five or 11 to six. And um, sometimes I got off early and I would leave the store and she said, you know, I'm not comfortable. And I said to her, I've never been afraid to walk through my own community. And I haven't. To this day, I've never felt nervous or any type of fear. I've never in any way um, sent that energy out into the world. So the safest place that I feel is in my community. And that's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, but her concern was legitimate because, yes, children's bags were getting robbed you know, or stolen. Um, um, you know, if you had a nice pair of sneakers, someone could possibly take them from you. And it didn't mean that you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, or um, it just meant that, unfortunately, and this wasn't even in the 90s, this was like maybe, well, this was in the 90s, but it was happening over the course of, you know, 10, 15 years, um, where young people were feared by um, the community because of the choices that they made. and. You know, I realized that it's not a it's not a community uh, crisis. It's a generational crisis. Um, I think when a young person is not um, constantly told that they are loved, when they're not constantly shown that they are great, when they're not constantly reminded that they're accountable for what they do and what they feel and what they see and you know when they're not constantly reminded that they have the power to change the direction of their life then they can make poor choices and I've lived in other places I've traveled around the world and it's not just a Brooklyn thing um, it's not just a hip hop thing, it's not just a black thing, it's not a racial thing, it's not a gender thing. It's really just young people choosing to make good choices for themselves. And um, really it starts with them and it ends with them. But many times um, that same mentality gets redirected into um, negative choices. So I think Brooklyn was full of that. It was, there was not enough reinforcement um, by the community in the in the like the large numbers to really start to change how that how young people started to see themselves and I will say that Boys and Girls High School um, was and the principal there uh, Dr. Frank Mickens he was my principal while I was there he was the principal since 1976 um, and he passed in 2000 and I want to say nine. Um, he understood that. He understood that young people needed to be held accountable. He understood that um, sometimes you don't need to give them choice. You need to give them direction. You need to give them um, an assignment. And 
you need to expect that they will do great things. Um, and so he, amongst many, um, G2AUC, another community activist, educator, um, these are certain people in our community that were uh, advocates for youth and at the same time were highly respected by the elders. And so they were able to figure out how to juxtapose those two worlds in a way where they, um, they saw how similar they were. And so I say all of that to say, you know, the, the bad rap that Brooklyn gets, you know, Bed-Stuy, do or die, or all the other things, Clinton Hill was rough, Fort Greene was rough, all of these gentrified communities and neighborhoods now, they had their time, but I think it was all very much stemmed to the choices that young people made. Um, the elders weren't gun clapping. They, you know, they, they weren't robbing and stealing. It was young people making poor choices. And so I don't in any way say that that is an issue that only happens in Brooklyn. Um, so yeah, over time, those, those advocates, those, those activists for young people and for education and for arts and for all of the things that really drove our community to thrive, they were able to turn a lot of that around. So the 5,000 students that I went to school with from 1996 to 19, well, 99, 2000, um, every year, you know, those students graduated. They went on to four-year colleges. They got full year, full rides, I should say, to Ivy League universities. They were black kids who were written off by society, but because someone believed in them, because a group of educators believed in them and held them accountable, um, they were really able to, I think, become the key influencers that we see in society today or that we don't hear about. Um, and yeah, so I think they're, my eye is jumping. I think that there's um, a need for, for that in any community that may have a bad rap. But yeah, Brooklyn was no worse than Compton. It was, it was no worse than Kentucky. It was no worse than some of these other places that have bad reps. I just think it's a matter of you know, how long are people gonna ignore it and how, long, how, how many people are gonna stand up and fight against it. So would you say that, that your high school play played a big role for you and for other students in huge. supporting Oh my gosh, people. yes, huge role, huge role. Um, Do you wanna talk about any of your experiences there? Oh, all my experiences were great. I always, you know, I feel very proud to say that I am uh, Miss Boys and Girls High School class of 2000. I was the only, I was the first, I always say this because I'm proud of it. <laughs> um, I was the first uh, Miss Boys and Girls. Many high schools do that, but we didn't at the time. Um, and I love to hear that after I graduated, many they've se they selected a few more. Um, but Boys and Girls High School, you know, is still a community school, and um, we came in at all different levels. We came in academically and at different levels, socially at different levels. Um, but when we walked into that building, when those doors opened up to us every single day, uh, I know I keep throwing the word out there, but there was a level of accountability that we had. And um, no, we didn't agree with everything, and we definitely didn't all get along. But um, the expectation of our leadership, the principal, all the way down to you know the custodians, they had an expectation of every single young person that chose to be there. And 
when those doors opened up at the end of the day, we flooded this community. We walked home every single day. We flooded Flatbush. We flooded Brownsville. We flooded Bushwick. We, I mean, we went as far out as there were students coming from Queens and everywhere. Um, 5,000 students is a lot of students. And most high schools in this education system of the DOE uh, can't claim 5,000 students because they've been chopped up into smaller schools. So um, we made it work. And I say we made it work because you could have the best leadership in the world, but if your followers don't go along to get along, then there's chaos. And 5,000 students, we made it work. We didn't fight in hallways because we knew that fighting not only got you a suspension, but it got you embarrassed because we had the type of principal that just didn't accept that. There was a very low, if no, tolerance for um, any type of um, physical abuse toward your fellow classmates. Um, so that was just something we didn't see, you know. But we saw the cliques. We were high school students, you know. We saw the everything else. Um, but when it was when June rolled around, every single graduating class was in the hundreds. Um, and we, we produced great members of society, and they all came from these communities that in many ways were written off, really. The same young people um, who were, some of them I should say, defaming property and doing things in the 80s, these were the, the children of some of them, or these were, you know, uh, the siblings of some of them. And I think when we all walked through those doors at 1700 Fulton Street, it was just, it was an unspoken rule. You come in every single day to conform, and you will walk out better. And so, yeah, I think that school, um, as well as other community organizations, Restoration Plaza, um, well, Bedstuy Restoration Corporation, um, a number of uh, community activism groups, and um, you know our parents, they all played a major part in how these young people in this community turned themselves around. And even the ones that I see now, like, you know, I walk up and down in the neighborhood. Like I said, I'm not estranged to my community at all. So I see people I know all the time. And though gentrification has definitely become very real, and I do feel like there's things I don't know about the place that I call home, which is odd. Um, when I walk through the streets, I see some of those same folks that were like goofing off in high school graduated and you know now have children and I'm like oh my gosh you have three children now it has been 16 years since I've been out of school but um, it's good to see that they're still here it's good to see that they haven't abandoned um, our community they are still raising children here and sending them to the schools in the neighborhood and um, you know taking care of the homes that they've inherited or living in the homes that their parents still own. I just, I really do believe that uh, this community in particular, and I'm talking about central Brooklyn, so that covers Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Bed-Stuy, Bushwick, like all of those communities, um, Crown Heights, people are still here and people wanna stay here. I don't think that anywhere um, is exempt from change, but I know that uh, it's very challenging when your home is becoming um, costly and 
your community is changing and you are not a part of it. So I love to see the fact that people are resilient. And I guess that goes back to you know the tenacity of uh, the people in this community. They're determined that this will remain home, that their children and their grandchildren will one day be able to come back and say, you know, my family's owned this house for 100 years um, and we're not going anywhere. So the trend is what it is. Um, but the legacy and the history of this community will remain through generations. And I'm sure at a time um, we'll be able to, I think with this project and many others, we'll be able to um, kind of document that. So if anything were to happen um, to the faces as, as years go on, the history is still there. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your relationship to the neighborhood now that you still consider it your home? Yeah. But have this sort of commuting lifestyle? Well, I decided in 2014 to leave Brooklyn um, as far as like my residency. I, I, I hate to say it that way because there's, I guess it's hard for me to articulate because I don't think about it in this way. Um, I really do rest my head in Jersey City and um, I left Brooklyn, <laughs> I have to say it like this, you know, I was just kind of tired of not having the luxury life that I felt like I worked really hard for. And um, I know that it's possible to have here, but I didn't want to compromise my um, lifestyle, but then also just my future. I mean, I think it can be very costly to live in Brooklyn. Um, Dumbo and even now Fort Greene and Brooklyn Heights and all of these other places, you know, why spend $5,000 a month to live there just to say that you have a gym in your building or a swimming pool or a nice view? And um, I travel around the world and I tell people all the time when they ask me where I'm from, I never say New York first. I always say Brooklyn first um, because Brooklyn is internationally known. And it's so funny because that is a lyric from a song. But, um, but yeah, Brooklyn is. Brooklyn is internationally known and there's no other place I'd rather be from. Like there's no other place I'd rather call home. Um, so my roots here don't leave when I leave. Um, I have lived in other states. I have, um, yeah, I've lived in other states for years actually, but that's where my professional life took me, that's where my personal life took me. But I've not once lost my connection to Brooklyn and the main reason, and I don't know if anyone, everyone can say this, but the main reason is because I do the work here. So, and when I say work, I don't mean like someone gives me a paycheck to work at an office in Brooklyn. I still am very active in my community. I've produced many events in Brooklyn. I'm still an advocate of the politicians here. Um, just because I don't cast my vote for them doesn't mean that I can't promote them and the work that they're doing. Um, these are friends, these are, these are um, colleagues, these are uh, family members like Brooklyn gets my sweat equity before anywhere so uh, yeah I find it interesting that I chose to go to Jersey City because I f we found an awesome place there I was like oh my gosh I can wake up to looking at the Verrazano Bridge the water and all the way up to the Empire State Building every morning 
absolutely. Why not? Um, yeah, because I never feel like I'm compromising my, my Brooklynite card, as I say. Um, I never feel like I'm compromising that. So um, it is interesting, though, leaving, because I find that as a native New Yorker, when you move to Jersey, you forfeit certain things. And I learned like that what? the hard way. You know, like, you know, being active in the community, there's certain luxuries as a New Yorker that you get. So um, the mayor established this uh, New York City kind of like membership card, and I don't qualify. <laughs> um, or gosh, even just taxes. I live in Jersey, but I still do a lot of work in New York and other places, and I pay double the tax. Um, I, I have to buy two cards for the train. So it's not just a Metro card, it's also a PATH train card. So there's a lot of things that you add on, and you know, if I tallied it up, maybe I could have stayed in Brooklyn. Um, however, I still feel like I made a great choice. And as long as I continue to uh, remind myself that you will never lose where you're from as long as you contribute to it. Um, the minute you step away from it and you disconnect your life from where you call home, then technically you've lost a sense of home already. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, I'm very vested in this community and I will never not be. Um, and I, I would love in many ways, and I, you know, now that I'm being interviewed, I can kind of say this publicly, but I would encourage every Brooklynite to have that same sense of community, have that same sense of home, and have that same sense of responsibility to your home. You know, if you want to see Brooklyn remain the cultural epicenter in a sense of um, New York City, but if you want to see your community um, hold true to some of its uh, cultural values, then you have to keep it as priority. And um, there's, there has to be a way that the work that we do in the world can continue to preserve the legacy of where we call home. That's if we believe in it. If we don't, then, you know, choose wherever you want to call home. But for me, Brooklyn's always going to be my home, and I'm always going to do the work to make sure that it stays that way. So do you hope one day to be able to move back to live in the borough itself? Oh, yeah. I would love to um, own something here, to be honest with you. I see myself kind of moving around the world. Um, so I think for me it's owning property here. And I have property in the family, and maybe one of these days, you know, <laughs> I'll be able to inherit it or to purchase it. Um, but for the most part, I do want to um, come back in one way or another. I feel like I could always use my mom or dad's address because they're not going anywhere. Um, but I'd like to say that in keeping Brooklyn my home, I want to um, own something here because I feel like that is probably one of the greatest ways to maintain a sense of root rooting and um, placement is ownership. So I could always come back and the more money I make, cause it will happen, you know, I could get more expensive apartments, but I'm really just contributing to someone else's vision and dream. And for me, it'd be awesome if I owned not just residential, but maybe commercial here as well. I think that's 
that's one of the things that I take away from my ancestors, my grandparents and, and elders in my family is that, you know, they didn't just call Brooklyn home. They had homes in Brooklyn to call home. And that is something really, really, really powerful for me is like, okay, you could always claim it. But if you can't claim a spot in it, then, you know, anything could happen and, and it might not be yours anymore. So, um, yeah, I, my grandparents um, on both sides, my mom's side, um, my great grandmother, all of her sons, which included my grandfather, they purchased a home for her in Bed-Stuy on McDonough. And um, between Saratoga and, no, Howard and Howard and Saratoga, yeah. And then um, that house is still in my family. It's actually with the eldest member of my family who was through marriage, but um, it's still like, we can go there <laughs> if, if we wanted to. And then, um, my father's side, my great-grandmother on my father's side, she purchased a house in right around the corner, literally on Macon, between Stuyvesant and Malcolm X, and that's still in our family. And um, my eldest aunt, um, she got the real estate bug as well and purchased property. And the house that my father actually owns was in initially my great-grandmother's house. And when she was passing, and he needed a place to live, she said, you're gonna purchase this from me. You're not just going to live here. And sure enough, um, myself and my siblings, we were all um, raised through that house. Um, and my father still owns it, but it was because my, grandma, my great-grandmother said, you know, this is something that means a lot to me. I, as a woman, owned property in Brooklyn when it wasn't easy. Um, and I want my children and my grandchildren to understand the value of it. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's a lot to say, and this is just my family, but it's not uh, a unique case. I have so many friends who, you know, and many of them I'm gonna share this project with, but I really want them to be able to share their family stories because it's, it, yeah, I mean, our, our history is like deep. Like we roll deep Brooklynites and and the richness of black culture in Brooklyn is is deep. And the reason why gentrification is so popular in our community is because and kind of started here in many ways um, is because of the preservation of our community by the elders, by the people that, you know, worked really hard and toiled and did every whatever they had to do, some of which I probably will never know to make sure that these homes could be in our families. So it's really important for all of us to keep telling our stories and you know, to also understand the value. Don't let somebody come in and say, hey, we'll offer you 1.5 million. That sounds like a lot, but once you pay the taxes, the closing fees, I mean like really educate yourself about the process. You'll be surprised you'll walk away with just enough to move to maybe North Carolina, you know, like maybe. So. I think it's important that as young people and, and my generation, especially, you know, people in their 30s and their early 40s, that we understand that, you know, it's really up to us to keep this going um, and, you know, teaching it to our children. I think that's how we've gotten this far. And, um, yeah. Do you have any last memories or comments that you wanted to share with me? Um, I shared a lot. I feel like I covered a lot. Now, granted, it's not even 
close to all of the things that I've experienced in this place, but I will say that, um, well, one, I appreciate the fact that you all are doing this. I think the Brooklyn Public Library has always been a part of my upbringing. Uh, it's the place we went to check books out. I had a library card at like four, three, something like that. Um, so I think it's important that um, great organizations and foundations and companies like the Public Library, um, like the Brooklyn Historical Society, like the Brooklyn Arts Council, I think all of these organizations um, have a responsibility to do this work and I appreciate you all for doing that. Uh, and I just really look forward to um, in the short amount of time that we have before this project is kind of complete, but I feel like I have a responsibility to make sure that I share this with my community of people and my network and my circles so that we can continu continue to um, you know create the content that you all are looking for and and you know tell our story so um, yeah I think that's it I want to acknowledge um, who do I want to acknowledge I want to acknowledge no I was thinking about, then that would lead to acknowledging someone else. So mm -hmm. I will just say that I'm, I'm grateful to, to my ancestors and to my elders and to um, my peers even for the work that they're doing and that the work that they've done um, so that I can be sitting here talking to you about this and um, knowing that my story is valid just as anyone else's. And uh, with that said, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to me today. I yeah, guess. absolutely.